Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Thomas Kidd, author of Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Thomas Kidd, author of Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. There have been a lot of books written about Benjamin Franklin. What's new with this one? Well, there's so much to go on with Franklin. I mean, he's, he's such a brilliant, compelling figure in, in several major fields. We know him from science, publishing, uh, diplomacy. Um, but I think that as you dig deeper into his, his life and his vast body of writings, uh, religion is a persistent theme. And, and in fact, it's a major concern of his. Um, we, we think that Franklin probably published more as an author on religious topics than any other 18th century layperson in America, which you, you, you know, we know Franklin talks about himself in his autobiography as being a deist, uh, which might suggest a kind of a lack of interest uh, or, or just being secular or something like that uh, today. But it, it turns out that he was absolutely consumed with religious issues, theological questions, ideas about virtue and uh, morality in a republic and so forth. And so I thought that there was something I could add to approach him biographically for sure. And so all the, the main issues we would expect to see, the electrical experiments and the, the Declaration of Independence and so forth are all there. But to see how religion played out in his life and what exactly he meant when he said in his autobiography that he was a thorough deist. What did that mean at the time? Well, being a deist could mean a lot of different things in the 18th century. Um, I think most people, if they have any conception of deism today, uh, you think of God as the cosmic watchmaker uh, who, you know, God is a creator God, but that he somehow wound up the world and the universe and then just kind of let it go on its own. Um, and went off to, to do something else. <laughs> We're not sure what. Uh, so a distant God, um, a creator, but, but not involved in daily human affairs. And there definitely are deists who believe that, uh, especially in England in the mid-1700s. And, and Franklin is exposed to those people. But sometimes deism just meant that you were critical of certain parts of traditional Christianity or even um, more specifically, Calvinism with its belief in predestination and, and uh, total depravity of man and these, these kind of things. There were some people who all being a deist meant to them was that they're critical of previous generations uh, in their more traditional Calvinist, biblicist faith. For Franklin, this has a real resonance because he grows up in a Puritan family in Boston uh, in a very traditional, devout context. And so a lot of his deism, and I am comfortable calling him a deist, even though there's a lot more to his faith than just simple deism, a lot of his deism is um, trying to understand where he was going to land religiously, theologically, um, as he 
push back against the, the intensity and I think he thought negativity sometimes of his parents' faith, that's a lot of what deism entailed for him. You, you sometimes hear people say, oh, you know, all the founding fathers were deists. Was that true? Well, I think that deism is overrepresented in, among the major founders. I think we can certainly say for shorthand that Jefferson and Franklin are deists. Um, Madison is pretty reticent about his own beliefs. Um, Hamilton is too, uh, though by a, the end of his life, Hamilton seems to kind of come back to more a traditional faith. Washington is very respectful about religion and traditional belief, but is, again, very reticent about his own commitments. Um, but when you get out into the broader patriot movement, um, there are many, many traditional Christians, um, certainly among the rank and file of those who fought in the revolution, uh, the pastors who backed the revolution. And when you get down to founding fathers like Patrick Henry, uh, John Jay, people like this, I mean, there, there's definitely some devout Christians among them. But among the top five or six founding fathers, uh, there are definitely deistic, or John Adams' case, kind of Unitarian beliefs that are prevalent among the major founders. Are deists Christians? They would say that they're Christians. Um, I think for traditional Christians, there would be some <laughs> doubts. I mean, you know, John Jefferson, for example, says, um, I, I'm a Christian, and, and in the only sense that Jesus wanted people to be Christians. But then uh, Jefferson, of course, famously comes out with his own version of the Christian Gospels uh, with most of the miracles taken out, and it ends with the, the stone being rolled in front of the grave, and they go away, and there's no resurrection. So for traditional Christians, this would be a real uh, problem in terms of accepting this, this sort of faith as, as full-blown Christianity. Um, I think that Franklin saw himself as a Christian of a certain kind, um, and I think a lot of people like Franklin see themselves as even rescuing Christianity, that Christianity has become over time corrupt um, and that Jesus' disciples sort of imposed claims of messiahship and these sorts of things that they weren't sure that Jesus himself actually embraced. and so. Someone like Franklin would say that the reclaiming of Christianity began in earnest in the Reformation in the, in the 16th century, um, but there was still a lot of work to do to get back to the pure, unadulterated uh, teachings of Jesus himself. And so people like Jefferson and Franklin would say, absolutely affirm that they believed in Jesus' ethical, moral teachings and that he was the greatest moral teacher that the world had ever seen. Um, but they didn't necessarily believe in his divinity and the miracles and, and those sorts of things. And they definitely didn't believe in an institutional Christian church, which they thought was uh, the, the root of the corruption in Christianity. Did deists have clergy or churches or...? or uh... not, not deists per se. I think the closest that you would get to that is uh, the Unitarian uh, what became the Unitarian Church, um, which was uh, better developed in Franklin's time in England than it was in America. Um, though, um, just uh, this morning walked past a plaque for the first Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, so that's beginning to come in in the late 1700s and in the aftermath of the Revolution. So you start to see the emergence 
of um, a more formal denominational commitment to uh, this rationalist, moralistic kind of kind of emphasis, as opposed to the emphasis on doctrines like the Trinity, which Unitarians say that it just makes no sense. It's not explicitly uh, stated in the Bible that God is Trinitarian, one God and three persons. This is an accretion over time uh, that we need to reject and get back just to the moral teachings. What happened to deism? Are there deists today? Well, um, Thomas Jefferson predicted that by the time he was an old man that that all young people in America were going to be becoming Unitarians. Um, that didn't work out so well. Is Unitarianism sort of a, a relative of deism or an offspring of it? Unitarian Universalism is, is, is the, you know, again, this kind of denominational offshoot of deism. Um, and uh, most towns of, of any decent size would have a Unitarian or a Unitarian Universalist church today. Um, and, and I think that that kind of, of belief um, denominationally in terms of practice remains pretty small, um, but I think those themes of, well, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter so much about these particular doctrines, but you need to be a good person and those, those kind of things. Those beliefs, of course, have very powerful traction today in, in America. The, you know, major fi figures in pop culture will kind of advance the, these sorts of beliefs. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that Franklin is a kind of a pioneer of that sort of you know, purely moralistic kind of view as opposed to a doctrinal version of Christianity. Well, you write in your book about Franklin's 13 virtues that he had in his um, autobiography, what, what were some of them, and, and, and do they fit with the, what you're just saying about universal uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, and it's the kind of things that he explains in his, um, in his Poor Richard, uh, his almanac, and, and uh, other writings of his, you know, we're talking about frugality and honesty, and these kind of things that you would expect to come from Franklin, and, and they're, they're really the, sort of the classic virtues, many of them, and so they don't necessarily have exclusively Christian roots, although Franklin would say that uh, Jesus' teaching is sort of the, the model for, for this, uh, although uh, he, he said imitate Jesus and Socrates, right? So he, he, he thinks, well, yes, Christianity, but the classical tradition also has something to add here, um, and, and he, he would gladly bring in other you know, enlightenment sources that are developing around him in, in uh, the 18th century. So, um, he, yeah, I mean, he, as you suggest, makes a list of these core virtues and, and even tries to kind of track his own faithfulness to these virtues um, on, a, on a daily basis. And, 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 you know, in his way and at times, I think he tries to be very diligent and even devout about kind of the practice of these of these virtues, and, and he's experiment. Franklin is an experimenter, of course, and he's experimenting in this new kind of religion that is all focused on virtue, um, and where belief, you, of course, you probably need to believe in God, uh, but, but almost everything else becomes kind of flexible. And Although you say in your book some traditional Christians have found Fra Franklin's 13 virtues to be suspiciously godless. Right, so because you, you know you don't need God 
to empower you to, to live these things. Now, traditional Christians would say, yes, we want to manifest these virtues, but because of our own failings, we have to have God to help us, to empower us to live this way. And evangelical Christians around Franklin, uh, including his, some of his family members, um, would say that what you really need is a conversion experience where God changes your heart. He comes to live within you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he changes you so that you can manifest virtue and morality. Um, Franklin's not that interested in the conversion part. I mean, he, he thinks, no, I think we can go straight to the virtues. Um, and one of the advantages for that, for Franklin, is this, of course, can be a highly individualistic kind of thing. It's you know, just up to you. But it's also very broadly accessible um, to people of all kinds of different faiths. Uh, Franklin, of course, was sympathetic to Judaism and helps support the early synagogues and in uh, Philadelphia and, um, you know, it could even uh, envision a role for other, you know, Islam and you know, other kinds of religions. Um, because what he thinks is important is that all these major religions hold basically similar moral codes in common. And so he thinks, well, you know, doctrine is just divisive because there's so many people who don't believe in Jesus, uh, certainly that don't believe in the need for an evangelical conversion experience. So if we can just boil it down to morality, um, that's what the world really needs anyway. Um, that, that, he thinks, should be the, the core of any religion that's really worthwhile. And so that's, that's why he puts the emphasis there. You, you said he grew up a Calvinist. Is, did his family, was his family Calvinist going back generations? Yes, his, his family, I mean, we can go back to generations in his family that had struggled uh, in England to live out their faith and freedom, many of them as Puritans. Uh, by, the, by the late 1600s, you're talking about people who are uh, being called dissenters or nonconformists. They were at odds with the Church of England? They were at odds with the Church of England over various uh, problems that they saw in the Church of England that they thought were still too Catholic. You know, the, the English Reformation had begun, of course, as a rejection of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. In the 1600s, we're still fighting about how far the Reformation should go. Um, and many of these people, these nonconformist Puritans, uh, dissenters, are, are Calvinistic in their beliefs. Um, they're taking the teachings of John Calvin and saying we, we need to apply this to the Church of England. Many, many times the Church of England is not very receptive to these kinds of teachings and reforms. And so they're struggling for reform. So the Franklin family going back uh, before they left for, uh, for America uh, were participating in the struggle for full reform and Calvinist uh, emphases. And uh, his parents um, come, his father comes in uh, the 1680s out of a time of, of persecution um, under the English church in which many of these more conservative Calvinistic reformers were, were still late. I mean, we think of Massachusetts being settled in the 1630s, but here we are a half century later, there's still these dissidents that are coming to America to find religious freedom, and, and his parents were, were among those groups. You say in your book that uh, Benjamin Franklin may very well have delivered candles to Cotton Mather when he was a youth. That's right. But we just fill people in on who Cotton Mather was. Well, Cotton Mather in um, the late 1600s, early 1700s, is the most influential uh, pastor in Boston. 
Um, and he is very much out of that Puritan mold that had founded the New England colonies in Massachusetts. Um, and so uh, Franklin's uh, father is a, is a tallow chandler, a, a candle maker, uh, which is a, a tradesman kind of business, uh, very appropriate for Franklin's own upbringing um, as a tradesman. And um, so one of the things that as a boy Ben Franklin would do is, is make candle deliveries. And, and you know, we think about pre-electricity, Franklin's going to be working on that, but, but uh, we're pre-electricity. And so pastors and professors and so forth just needed phenomenal amounts of candles. And so he would go to Cotton Mather's house, and sometimes Cotton Mather would give him a bit of advice and exhortation. And at that time, Franklin's still very much in the Calvinist uh, fold. And so growing up, Franklin and his family are going to a, a Congregationalist church, which is the Church of the Puritans in Massachusetts, and uh, learning Calvinistic doctrine and very deep learning in the Bible. You have a lot of little incidents in Franklin's life sprinkled throughout your book, but one of them you mentioned his brother who ran a newspaper in Boston, and you say he kind of revolutionized newspapers. His brother should get more credit for having done that. What, what was different about James Franklin's newspaper? Right. Well, we think of, right, rightly, we think of Ben Franklin as a revolutionary in the print industry, including newspapers uh, with the Pennsylvania Gazette. But James Franklin um, started his newspaper in, in Boston, it, it, was, um, it was enormously controversial and didn't last for very long. Uh, and so um, one of the things that was new is that, I mean, there hadn't been newspapers in the colonies for very long at all. And the ones that were there tended to just reprint things from the, the London newspapers would show up in Boston or Philadelphia, and they would just reprint the content from the London newspapers. And so it was very international focused and just kind of derivative. Um, James Franklin wanted to cover controversies happening in Boston um, in, in ways that were often quite offensive to local pastors. Um, but he would also get involved with uh, controversies like, for instance, they, they were um, debating the wisdom of inoculation for smallpox at the time. Um, turns out on that one, I mean, you think of the Franklins as being very progressive on things. Uh, James Franklin was resistant to inoculation, and Cotton Mather was the one who was pushing to adopt this medical practice because so many people were dying of smallpox in the colonies at the time. Um, and Cotton Mather actually got his house firebombed by a critic uh, for, for pushing for inoculation. And I, I think that, that even though I think Ben Franklin thought Cotton Mather was kind of stuffy and this, this sort of thing, but I think at a certain level he really admired him because of his courage on that scientific debate. Um, so, so the Franklin's newspaper didn't last very long in Boston because it was under so much pressure from the, the authorities. Did Franklin ever write negatively about Calvinism or about his rejection of Calvinism? Sure, yes. I mean, he uh, most importantly in the 1730s got involved with uh, a lot of debates in Philadelphia by this point he's moved to Philadelphia um, and he had a, uh, a favorite pastor in in Philadelphia Presbyterian pastor who uh, was a little bit more I guess you would say de deistically inclined um, not too radical but just emphasizing morality uh, not worrying so much about uh, the details of doctrine um, and this this pastor Samuel Hemphill fell under discipline from the Presbyterian uh, Synod in, in Philadelphia, 
and um, was brought up basically for a heresy trial. And, and Franklin was exasperated, and, and, and that gave Franklin the opportunity to enlist on Hemphill's side and defending his theology against the traditional Calvinist theology, not only of his upbringing, but of the, the Philadelphia Presbyterian churches at the time. So when Franklin left Boston and moved to Philadelphia, can you compare the religious life in Boston versus what was going on in Philadelphia at the time? In general, Philadelphia, by the time Franklin uh, gets to Philadelphia, is, um, is more pluralistic religiously. Of course, founded in the 1680s uh, by the Quakers, but because the Quakers allowed freedom of religion um, and allowed lots of different groups to settle in Philadelphia, uh, it attracted a, a lot of different kinds of religious groups, mostly Christian, but including not too long there were Jews living in, in Philadelphia. Um, and so when Franklin um, got to Philadelphia, I mean, one of his, the very first things that he did was to go to a Quaker meeting. Um, he actually ended up falling asleep in the middle of the, <laughs> of the meeting. Um, but but uh, he, he found the religious diversity of Philadelphia bracing after having grown up in a relatively uniform religious culture in Boston. Now, now Boston was, by the 1680s, starting to see some different kinds of Christians come in, um, Quakers, Baptists, Anglicans, a Church of England people. Um, but it really was still a Puritan-dominated town when he was born in the early 1700s. So Philadelphia struck him as uh, quite pluralistic, although it wasn't too long after he moved to Philadelphia, that then he went to London, and, and London was just stunning to him. Uh, so now he's really seeing the wider world and realizing that he had grown up in a fairly narrow, homogenous environment. So the Church of England was the official church in England. Did it have the similar status in the colonies? In uh, most of the southern colonies, it was the established tax-supported denomination the Church of England was. Um, it had official support in, in even some of the mid-Atlantic colonies. Um, Pennsylvania, of course, is unusual. It's one of the two colonies, along with Rhode Island, that had no established church, even though the Quakers dominate uh, Philadelphia and, and, and Pennsylvania politics. Uh, but it doesn't officially receive tax support. Um, but the Church of England um, uh, does have a very powerful role in many of the colonies, and then, of course, in, in Philadelphia, Christ Church uh, becomes the church that he, uh, Franklin and his wife attend, and they rent a pew there. Uh, I think Ben Franklin goes probably somewhat to just accommodate his wife. I, th I think his wife is actually, she seems to have been quite a devout uh, uh, Anglican, um, and, and sometimes he's, he's having to post advertisements that people have taken books of hers, religious devotional books of hers, and they need to give them back. And people put these ads in the newspaper and so forth. So she seems to be someone who, who does really read devotional material, unlike Franklin. Well, Franklin's son was baptized in Anglican also. Yes. Yes. And, and, and she, uh, Deborah seems to have taken the initiative to make sure the children were being brought up in, in the faith. And, and the first thing that you would do for that would, would to be have them baptized as infants. So he was a regular churchgoer? When he was in Philadelphia, I think he was going fairly regularly. Um, and he would go to different churches. Uh, of course, as I said, he was involved in this uh, 
Fuhrer in the, in the Presbyterian Church, and so before he got married, he would visit different churches and try to find someone, because just coming out of his childhood, he knew he should be going to church. I mean, what, you know, what would it mean if he weren't going to church and he didn't want to be known as someone who didn't go to church? Um, once he goes to London, and of course he spends basically the second half of his life as a diplomat either in London or Paris, um, I don't get the sense that he was going to church very much then. What did he think of the Quakers? He, he liked the Quakers a lot uh, because of their simplicity. Um, and he thought that the Quakers were, um, b because of the simplicity of their church services and the, the organization of their churches, uh, which emphasized simplicity and kind of New Testament, um, the original purposes of the church and so forth. Um, and he was, he was really impressed that uh, the, the uh, mediators of, of Quaker meetings weren't paid, unlike uh, pastors and so forth. And he thought that you know get the money equation out of the church, and that'll that would really help um, it, it to be just committed to kind of gospel truth and its simplicity. And so um, he, he never becomes a Quaker. I think there are people in England uh, and France who think he's a Quaker because he kind of dresses in some Hallmark Quaker ways, and I, I think. And especially in France, I think he almost tries to give that kind of impression of the exotic American uh, Quaker. Um, but of all denominations, uh, I think that Franklin is probably overall the most symp sympathetic to the Quakers. What do you think of Catholics? He grows up in a very intensely anti-Catholic environment. Um, now, England, and not just the Puritans, but, but English culture in the 1700s is intensely anti-Catholic. And this goes back to issues about the Glorious Revolution, which had kicked out the Catholic, King James II, um, the wars of the Reformation, refugees are everywhere, they're being uh, expelled, Protestant refugees coming to America. So there's some very deep-seated roots of anti-Catholicism that he just kind of naturally accepts. Um, but when he goes to England and then goes to the continent, he starts to get some exposure to actual Catholics. Uh, he'd have almost no exposure to Catholics. There's very few Catholics living in the colonies. Um, maybe some that he met in, in Pennsylvania from time to time. But uh, he writes about meeting Catholics in, in England. Um, it was just a, just a few, but, but he, he writes about meeting uh, some what to him seemed to be, seemed to be older, godly Catholic women um, who are quite devout, and he's impressed. Uh, when he gets to visit the continent, he's impressed by the Catholic uh, cathedral's architecture, um, like some things about uh, the, the Catholic culture. They're, they're non-Sabbatarian, so they'll play and, and, and have fun on Sundays. And he thinks, this is good. I, li I like this kind of religion. Um, so he over time, I think, um, warms up to Catholicism, although even late in life, um, I mean, actually one of the things that he had to do, that all, every, all the chief organizers of the University of Pennsylvania have to sign off on basically an anti-Catholic statement um, as, as founders of the university, uh, originally the Academy of Philadelphia. It was kind of shocking. They have to swear off transubstantiation as a real specific Catholic doctrines and, and make clear that they have no allegiance to the Pope. What did he think about American Indians? 
Some of his earliest uh, diplomatic experiences in negotiations with Pennsylvania Indians, and um, he's quite negative about them. Um, he, he, I think he's afraid of them, um, like a lot of colonists were, were at the time. Um, and there's uh, an episode that he writes about at great length. Uh, it's amazing how much attention he gives to this about, about um, an altercation at a di diplomatic conference where um, there's a group of Native Americans who are getting drunk at, at night and, and kind of menacing the English colonial you know, diplomats and, and give us more alcohol and this sort of thing. And he's, he's clearly scared and he, he's talking about the, these, this is why these are these barbarous people. And, and he says something about you know, this, this is like an image of hell, about them dancing drunk around the fire. And these, these kind of, but you can also tell that he's, he's not comfortable um, kind of being on their turf, as it were. Um, and, and so he, he does tend to have a pretty negative view of, of Native American culture. But there, there's other groups, uh, the Germans and so forth, that he'll take swipes at, too. So, so it's not as if he, he's uniquely hostile to Native Americans. He was also a slave owner, you say. He is. This is a real problem with Franklin. Um, he gets a lot of credit for very late in life coming over to the anti-slavery movement um, and becomes part of the, uh, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. Um, for most of his life, he's a slave owner. So uh, I think we can certainly commend him for getting involved in anti-slavery at the very, very end of his life. Um, it's, it's more than a lot of the other founding fathers did. Um, but He's not only um, a slave owner himself, but he makes a, a lot of money. A lot of the revenue for the Pennsylvania Gazette is um, for slave ads and, and also runaway slave ads. In other words, the master will post an ad for someone who's run away and wants to retrieve them. And, and Franklin, uh, for the time that he runs the Pennsylvania Gazette, seems quite content to um, to run these kinds of ads, and, and, and a lot of the ads seem to suggest that Franklin may have even been involved in slave trafficking. Um, in other words, the ad will say, um, if you're interested in buying this slave, inquire with the printer. Um, and so there's some debate among historians about just how deep he was involved with slavery in Philadelphia, but it was important for him, um, though. It, you know, we don't want to neglect the fact that by the end, he seems his conscience seems to have been stirred about that issue too. How much did you have to read to put this book together? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, Franklin's uh, Yale University Press uh, volumes of, of Franklin's papers um, run to something like forty-one volumes right now, four or five hundred pages each. I did not read every one of those volumes. I won't advertise that. Um, but I really did try to come up with every extant reference to religion in all of Franklin's papers. And to be totally honest with you, going into the project, I wasn't sure that there would be quite enough to do the project. I, I, I didn't quite understand how much there was. And I, I was absolutely wrong. There was an absolute flood of material about religion sometimes entire tracts that he was writing about religion, much more commonly just references in his almanac or in a letter uh, where he would compare something to something in the Bible 
or just you know, reference some biblical phrase, often without attribution. Uh, you just have to you know, find out that it was a, a biblical phrase. Um, and so um, I, what I tried to do was to, while I was walking through the details of his biography, some of those better known uh, instances, I was also trying to understand where he was at on, in terms of his own personal religious development uh, as those years went by. And so I, I tried to read effectively every reference I could find to God, the Bible, Jesus, morality, any, any topic like that I was interested in. You say uh, at one point, John Adams remarked that the Catholics thought him almost a Catholic. The Church of England claimed him as one of them. The Presbyterians thought him half a Presbyterian, and the Friends believed him a wet Quaker. <laughs> yeah. So did, he, did his views change all the time, or was he evasive? I think that part of what that means is that he styled himself as being a friend of many different kinds of Christians. Um, and maybe even Jews, at least. Uh, that, that um, And this is in a time of intense denominational conflict. So um, it was unusual to cross those kind of boundaries and, and to say, you know, I'll, I'll go to this church and then I'll go to this church. And it's, and, you know, I think that they all hold these kind of ethical, moral teachings in common. And so he's uninterested in denominational conflict, for sure. And would uh, express sympathy and kindness for denominational leaders. Um, and I, of course, by the time he becomes famous, I think many of them are excited by the prospect that he would be uh, at least a sympathizer, if not a member. Um, and so I, I think that's why what gives the impression to these different groups that he's almost one of us. You write here, in a breathtaking passage, Franklin's letter writing proposed that even if there were no truth in religion or the salvation of men's souls not worth regarding, ministers in biblical revelation still deserved a special honor. They are the indispensable guides to virtue and morality without which no society could long subsist. Did he ever give any suggestion he might think there's no God? I mean, is that what you gleaned from that? Right. Um, so that's a passage where he raises this theoretical scenario, even if there is no God, um, religion is still valuable. Um, and that that's a pretty extraordinary thing to say. I mean, it's not as if, I mean, people, as a logical uh, debate, people would, of course, from time to time raise, well, if there was no God, then, you know, maybe how should we live or something, something like that. So it's not as if it was entirely taboo to talk that way, but it's still... Uh, that struck me as him opening the door to the idea that it's not even essential to believe in God or, or it's not even essential that God exists. Um, and that, that really is a, a hint of strong radicalism in his thought. I, I think it's very difficult for anyone in the 1700s to really be an atheist. I mean, it, it's it, it's just not part of their mental world. I mean, because even someone like Jefferson, um, when he's grounding our, the basis for our rights, you know, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator, and people will say, "Oh, well, Jefferson's a deist." Yeah, he's a deist, but he's not an atheist. And and I think I think Franklin, um, and and he's insistent in another passage that. Uh, his evangelical uh, preacher friend, George Whitfield, 
had had said deism is just you know almost atheism and Franklin no 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 it's not atheism I, I'm in, insistent it's not atheism because atheism would mean immorality and just wanton uh, behavior uh, that, there's, that there's no constraints on and and that's that's why Franklin would at least not publicly ever want to countenance something like atheism. Well, I want to ask you about you mentioned George Whitefield and it, it seems like they're kind of an odd pairing to become friends. They're, it's a very unusual friendship between Franklin and Whitfield. It's, uh, Franklin um, really hitches his wagon to Whitfield's star, as it were, because Whitfield in the mid-1700s, by the early 1740s, is the most famous person in England and America at the time. And I didn't say religious person. He's the most famous person of any kind. I mean, Probably more people knew the king's name, but other than that, there is no person in England and America that approaches George Whitfield's. He was a preacher. He's a preacher. Uh, he's the most important preacher of the Great Awakening of the 1740s, and he travels to America seven times during his career. He's based in England, but he he comes to America seventeen seven times, and and he's uh, he's an absolute phenomenon celebrity. For the, for the time. And so uh, Franklin starts hearing about Whitfield uh, for several years before he comes, before Whitfield comes to America for the first time. Franklin's publishing reports about Whitfield's massive preaching assemblies, especially in London, where the reports are up to 80,000 people are coming to hear him preach. And again, this is before amplification and electricity. So these kinds of and Franklin is skeptical when he first hears them. I mean, he thinks, oh, this guy's probably a phony. Um, but then when Franklin uh, first meets Whitfield, when Whitfield comes for his first great preaching tour, Whitfield uh, comes to Philadelphia, and I think he asks around about who's the best printer in, in town. And they say, well, go talk to Franklin because, because he's the mo most innovative entrepreneurial printer in town. Um, and that's who Whitfield wants to work with because he's, among other things, a great religious entrepreneur and a, and a great innovator in uh, religious publishing and mass outreach uh, for his gospel message. So when Whitfield and Franklin meet for the first time, Whitfield is far, far more famous than, than Franklin is. Franklin is almost totally unknown outside of Philadelphia in uh, 1739 when they first meet. Um, Franklin thinks I can make tons of money off of this guy, and he does. He 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 prints Whitfield's sermons. He prints prints his uh, journals, which are wildly popular about his travels throughout Britain and America. Um, Franklin publishes anti-Whitfield material. He publishes whatever. So because, theology aside, it's just good for business. <laughs> it's good for business. Although Franklin, I think, believes um, he's not into Whitfield's talk about being born again and conversion. But they were friends. But they became good friends. I mean, it begins as a business relationship, a purely business, uh, especially for, for Franklin. But it goes very well, and they're both very happy with their relationship. Franklin becomes Whitfield's key publisher in America. And it transforms into a friendship. Um, it remains a professional friendship, but, but I think they're very close. And uh, Whitfield doesn't hold back with Franklin. I mean, he, he tells him in the private correspondence, you need to be born again. You, you need to accept Christ for salvation. 
And, and Franklin's kind of like, uh, I think I'm fine. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think I need to do that. Uh, but, but Whitfield keeps at it. So it's a very uh, transparent kind of relationship. They both completely understand their differences on theology and religion. Um, but I think that they also, because, because it's not too long before, before Franklin himself starts to become famous. Um, and certainly by the 1750s, Franklin's fame now is, is kind of paralleling uh, Whitfield's. And so, of course, being a celebrity can be a little isolating. Um, and I think that they both sort of understand that experience of fame and notoriety and, and sort of understand each other that way, even though they, they know. Um, and, and, and Franklin is explicit. I mean, wonderful passages in Franklin's autobiography about his relationship with Whitfield. Um, and he says, um, uh, ours was a mere civil friendship. It was not on a religious basis because we didn't agree on religion. On religion. Um, but he says, I, I admired Whitfield so much. Um, and he says, I think my opinion ought to count more because we weren't in agreement on, on religion. So I think Franklin really, really liked Whitfield. I have to, as a little bit of a non sequitur, I have to read this one paragraph. One of Franklin's chief targets in the Silas Duguid essays was Harvard College, where he once thought he might matriculate. Now he saw the college as a mind-numbing holding tank for children of the wealthy. <laughs> now, I should point out that, uh, that uh, swipe at Harvard, uh, your book is published by Yale University <laughs> Press. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was, the, his parents had thought about him becoming a pastor. I mean, as, as a young boy, he showed, I mean, being a pastor at that time is so connected to learning and education because the pastors are the most educated people um, in society. And so um, they thought about making him a, a, a pastor. And, and to do that in Boston, you would, you would go to Harvard. Um, and so for about a year, he was on a track, a ministerial kind of training track and going to uh, what became Boston Latin. But for some reason, his parents, because his parents are tradespeople, and for some reason, they pull him out of school, and so he basically only ends up having about one year of formal education in his life. Um, we're not sure why, but we think they may have already started to realize that he was uh, trending away from traditional Calvinism. What do you do when you're not writing books? <laughs> I have a 14 and a 12-year-old uh, at home, and so that takes up a lot of our time uh, playing basketball and hiking. And you teach? I, I do. I teach at Baylor University and uh, teach in areas, certainly uh, the, the founding era and uh, you know, America 1877. I was, right now I'm teaching an American legal history class, which is one of my uh, historical interests. Now the flap of the book says that you are associate director of the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University. Does somebody who teaches religion necessarily have to be a believer? No, I mean the the some of the greatest um, scholars of American religion, I think of uh, Perry Miller, who taught at Harvard, uh, who was the greatest historian of American Puritans, uh, was an atheist. He's a little like Franklin, I think, in the, in the sense that he was, he was deeply, Miller was deeply sympathetic to the Puritans, but couldn't quite bring himself to, to belief. I think it does help uh, to be a believer in the sense that um, I, I found in this project that that um, my own I'm I'm a believer myself, and, and and my own knowledge of the Bible, which I, I'm afraid to say wasn't as extensive as Franklin's, I was a little embarrassed by that. But I think it did help me to catch some references. One of the problems with Franklin's 
uh, work is that he uses so many unattributed biblical references that it can be hard to catch. You say he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards. And so there, there were times where I would have to think, I've heard that before, but I don't know where it is. And I would bring up Google, you know, these, these words and so figure out what chapter of the Bible it's in. But, but I, I do think it can help if, if you're a believer that, that it, um, it can help you, especially if you're part of a certain tradition that you're studying, to understand why are they arguing about some of these nuances theologically and some of the references that to them just seem kind of offhand obvious references might be a little easier to pick up, but uh, no, it's 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 definitely not required. And uh, you know, many uh, it's not been unusual in my career that uh, when we end up talking, you know, at an academic conference or something, I will say, you know, you a person some kind of faith, and it's a, a religious historian who I really admire. And they say, no, I absolutely not. So, not required at all. Now, I have a note to myself to ask about this, and I don't remember why. But what was Sheilaism? I was trying to think of what to call Franklin's religion. Um, and there's this wonderful analysis by Robert Bella um, in a book called Habits of the Heart, in which he talked about that one of the de definitive kinds of American religion is, is this extreme individualism that he called Sheilaism by this, this woman that he had interviewed, um, who basically said, you know, it, it's all about you know, me and what, what I, how I see God, you know, I kind of imagine God as being this and such, but there's no external guide at all. I mean, it's, it's just me and, and God, however I make God out to be. Um, and he said, you know, that, that that's a very distinctly American kind of religion. Um, I decided not to call or, or you know, credit Franklin with being a pioneer of Sheilaism because I, I think that Tom Paine, uh, who, who's probably the most radical skeptic among the leading founders, um, is a better fit for that type of religion because Paine notoriously in his book, The Age of Reason, said, my own mind is my own church. Um, so he's not you know, completely denying God or religion, but it's totally individualistic. Franklin is constrained, I think, by um, relationships that he has with people like Whitfield with his own religious upbringing. Um, there, there's just boundaries that are set for what Franklin might believe or especially what he might express publicly. Um, so I decided instead to, to say that what he taught was a kind of doctrineless moralized Christianity. We talked about this earlier where doctrine of almost any issue becomes kind of optional. If that, if that helps you to believe that, then great. But the point is moral living. Another skeptic who shows up in your book is David Hume, mm. and uh, Franklin met him in England. Yeah, in Scotland. Uh, who, who was David Hume, for people who don't know? Well, Hume was um, the most notorious skeptic in, in Scotland, one of the leading... This is skeptical about the existence of God? Maybe not so much the existence of God, but, but what he's really famous for is arguments against miracles. Um, and, and so he said... Um, you know, the, these miracles were told about in, in the New Testament. He's, he said, you know, what, the way we should test this is whether, you know, ha rationally have we ever experienced something like that? Does it, you know, and, and, and we don't receive testimony from 2,000 years ago or 1,700 years ago about what people said they saw happen. I mean, we're, we're, let, 
let's apply rationality to this. And, and it, it's, a, it's a detailed rationalist, logical argument that he makes, but it's very publicly controversial because Scotland at the time um, is a little bit like what New England was with the dominance of the Presbyterian Church, the official church of Scotland, which is very Calvinist and, and has a very strong public influence. And so for Hume to, um, I mean, and this is something that Franklin wouldn't do. I mean, making this kind of public argument against the, the biblical miracles and basically saying the Bible's not true in these passages. It is not true. Um, that's more incendiary than, than Franklin would usually be. So, um, but but uh, Hume and Franklin apparently got on, they, they didn't spend an enormous amount of time together, but they got on, along great. Um, and um, Franklin even spoke about uh, Hume as being a, a good Samaritan character because he was kind to him and took, took him in and so forth. And um, this was a kind, is illustrative again of the point is the way you live, uh, not even if you deny the miracles, uh, you, you can still be even maybe a kind of a Christian. I don't, I don't know that Hume would receive that label, but a kind of a Christian if you live in a Christ-like way. Now, you said earlier in the program that when Franklin got to London, he was just amazed at the diversity of religious beliefs there. But when he got to France, what was where was France at with religion at the time? Well, of course, this is before the French Revolution, and uh, the, the Catholic Church is still the dominant uh, religious force very much um, in France. And so this is a time when he gets to meet uh, a number of figures in the French Enlightenment, some of whom still have a strong affiliation with the Roman Catholic Church in France. Um, and I think he again starts to learn more about the texture of the Catholic Church there. Um, and some of the, uh, of course famously, he uh, makes friends with some French ladies and, <laughs> and, and some of them are actually uh, practicing Catholics. And, and, and um, when he tries to romance some of these French ladies, it's amazing, they routinely end up talking about religion. Um, and, and, he, and he'll sort of say to them, oh, I'm so confused about religion. Can't you help me understand about Jesus and the church and so forth? And they talk about the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. And um, he even uh, t t tries to, to, to marry a, a French woman, and then, and then he, he wants to marry off uh, his, his grandson uh, to, to a French girl. And, and, and they said, well, no, they can't because they're Catholic. One's Catholic, the other's Protestant. He said, oh, that, that'll be okay. The, the differences aren't that extreme. So that's yet another level of that kind of encounter with pluralism. Was there any uh, sign in his, uh, when he started to become a revolutionary or support the American Revolution, did he use religion as kind of a justification for it? Well, that was very common um, at the time that they would use religious categories, re religious concepts to justify the revolution. I think the most striking is that um, uh, Jefferson and Franklin propose a national seal for the, for the new United States uh, that would have been uh, a picture of Moses parting the Red Sea. Um, and, and it's a mo the motif of liberation from slavery in Egypt, slavery in Britain. Uh, this, this kind of thing. And they, so they thought that the founding of the United States and the new nation should be captured by a biblical image. I mean, it's a, it's a strange thing to have you know, these two deists. If you think oh, that, all that means is anti-Bible, anti-religion, um, that they were actually quite comfortable and, and encouraging America to have a biblicist national seal, which, of course, we, don't, we didn't end up having. That, that, that seal was not adopted, but that's what Jefferson and Franklin wanted.
Uh, two books uh, come up in, in your book about that may have influenced Franklin. One is um, d uh, d uh, Bunyan. Um, John Bunyan, the Pilgrim's the Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. and the other is uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Can mm -hmm. you talk about those? Sure. I mean, these are books um, that at the time of the Revolution, in the 1700s, um, these books would have been very, very well known, uh, better known than you know, Locke and sources like that that we, we, we talk about in the, in the Revolution. And uh, Bunyan was kind of Franklin's first love in a, in a literary sense. I mean, he just grew up the, the classic story of Pilgrim going to the celestial city and favorite of the Puritans. Uh, you know, Bunyan is, is a dissenter uh, like his, his father had been. And, and this, this is sort of the, the classic uh, English dissenting um, novel, I suppose you would say. And, and, and then Milton also writing religious poetry uh, about you know, the, the fall of Satan and these, these kind of things and uh, Paradise Lost and um, Adam and Eve. And, um, and so these are extra biblical but, but heavily uh, biblically informed sources that make that kind of imprint on Franklin's mind, on his rhetoric. Um, and Franklin uh, proposes a kind of devotional guide uh, uh, in, as early in his adulthood uh, that includes uh, readings from Milton uh, as part of his devotion, uh, poetic readings from Milton. So, and he would tell his, his sister about this, uh, who was a devout Christian, and say, say you'll see, I still, I still pray. I have this devotional guide, and, and some of it's from the Bible, but some of it's from these other uh, writers like Milton. So that was part of this you know, constellation of religious influences on him. You say he, he wrote his own version of the Lord's Prayer and, a, and his own version of the Book of Common Prayer. Franklin had um, a notion that um, the Book of Common Prayer, which was uh, used in the, the Church of England, including the services that he would go to, that the, the, the Book of Common Prayer and the King James Bible, which is the, the Bible for this, this culture, both could use some updating, um, some modernization. I mean. Um, it, King James Bible was going on 130, 140 years old at that point, and he thought, you know, it, it already could kind of use some updating so that people will see its relevance uh, now. And some of the things that he comes up with um, are not translations, really. They're, they're paraphrases that start sounding a lot like things that were happening in the revolution about the, you know, the, the court and the ministers and the corruption setting in politically and the, these kind of things. Um, so I think it probably would have been a little too modern, actually, for for people's taste. But but he had he had a sense, and this is way ahead of you know now in America today, modern translations have absolutely swamped King James in, ter in terms of popularity. And, and Franklin again is a kind of forerunner on those sorts of issues. Did did his views change as he reached the end of his life? I think towards the end he's. Trending back, sort of towards his parents' faith. Uh, I don't think he ever makes it all the way back, um, but he lives an awfully long time, um, and he's he's in bad health for most of the last decades of his his life. Um, he's come to feel the weight of political responsibility. Um, it's seen a lot of difficult things happen during the American Revolution, the frustrations of the 1780s, the Constitutional Convention. I mean, it's weighty things that he's gone through. 
and I think he, he starts to become convinced that there probably is something to the providence of God working out in human affairs. Um, and that maybe, maybe something happens when we pray. Uh, there's, you know, there's maybe not a one-to-one relationship between we pray and then this happens, but maybe it doesn't hurt anything to pray. Um, and, and it's clear that he absolutely thinks religion is, is vital for the life of the republic and, and that if we're going to be a moral people, we, we need to be a religious people. Um, so I think he's, he's trending back um, as an old man towards the faith of his parents. If you could talk to him, what would you ask him? <laughs> I'd, I'd want to ask him, tell me what you, you really, really believe about God and the Bible and Jesus and, and so forth. But, I mean, he was asked that five weeks before he died, and his answer was still kind of evasive about and I, I think he was telling the truth that he, he just really couldn't decide what he believed about Jesus. Um, and that, that was sort of the, the key issue. Do you actually believe that he's the Son of God? And, and I'm just not sure. So I'd, I'd love to talk to him more about that to see if I could pin him down. We've been speaking with Thomas Kidd. He's the author of this book, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.